0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, as we uh, begin this afternoon, uh, just a couple of quick things to mention to you because uh, you may want to look at these in the break or uh, at the end of our day today. And especially as we've been... um, thinking about uh, how we're applying uh, the reality of the the full scope of the gospel. Um, I said today, really, I could could only be a primer. And uh, when you've got four subjects, uh, four hours, that's all it is. So if you want to dig deeper into some of these things, there's a couple of resources uh, that I'd like to recommend. They they happen to be written by somebody I know. Um, Gospel Culture uh, this is a, um, a little book uh, that, um, I don't know, I wrote it uh, a year or so ago. It came out at the end of last year. Um, it's just a thin book, 100 pages, but it details and goes through the, implica- the scope of the gospel and its implications. If, you're, um, if you've got a, uh, a summer holiday coming up and uh, you want some reading material, my larger volume is called the, the Mission of God, The Mission of God, and this deals with... Uh, these issues in much, much more detail um, and uh, advances scriptural arguments for all of the things actually we've been talking about today. So uh, that's the mission of God, gospel culture. There are other resources down there as well. I'm here today with uh, some of my colleagues from Christian Concern. Where are you guys? Just wave. Um, And and, uh, Chris is downstairs, is he? He's He's downstairs, okay. So there's two uh, gentlemen uh, with me today who are from Christian Concern. So when I'm in England, which is about six times a year, um, I do a lot of work with Christian Concern, and I give direction to uh, their program called the Wilberforce Academy. And the Wilberforce Academy is a week-long program. It happens at Cambridge, at uh, the University of Cambridge, uh, in September for one week. It's a week of intensive teaching and training and equipping, in uh, the Christian worldview and speaking about Jesus Christ in public life. So there's quite a lot of young people here. If uh, this might be something that would interest you, it's a full scholarship program. There's an administration fee, but if you uh, you'll be you'll have to uh, apply. You'll be interviewed. If you're successful, though, you will you will come to Cambridge University for a week and have uh, world-class teaching from. Uh, people that I've assembled from all around the world to teach on these critical issues, some of which you've been getting a taste of today, and giving you practical tools as to how to apply it into each area of life, especially the public space. So if you're going into law or medicine or politics or education or business or the arts and you want to think Christianly about those things, the Wilberforce Academy is for you. So there are flyers downstairs. Do pick one of those up before you leave. And then just in the terms of the way Christian Concern, we're practically applying the gospel at the Christian Legal Centre and with our advocacy in the public space in Britain. You can go onto our website, but please pick up one of our packages here. Bring the gospel to the heart of the nation, media, law, politics. As, practi- as practical as it gets, if you want to cut it on the face out there, bearing witness to the gospel in the public space. So do pick those things up and um, avail yourself of those resources. Remember that books of that nature are not there to uh, sit on your shelves gathering dust, but to build spiritual muscle. Uh, That's why we read them. Why don't we pray together as we uh, begin now this afternoon. Lord, we do thank you for the spiritual food of your word, which builds us up, strengthens us, gives us the energy we need to serve you, to glorify you, to serve as your kingdom of priests. We thank you for the food we've eaten. We pray that you would uh, use it to strengthen our bodies and keep us awake, keep us alert. Now, after our lunch and and feed us with your word that we might be refreshed and enabled to serve you more effectively. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So this morning in those first couple of hours, what we've really been been able to do is, first of all, sketch from the, uh, let's call it the 5,000 foot helicopter perspective, the scope of the gospel. The relationship of the gospel and creation of culture of how we are to interact as God's people in our thinking about how the gospel itself, the message of Christ and his redemptive work relates to the created order. It's <clears throat> the created order is the word of God. It's 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 been spoken into existence by the word of God. It's sustained by that word. It's held together by that word. That word became flesh and he's come to redeem us and to restore all things back to the Father. So we thought about the scope of the gospel and the implication of all of that being that all of life, not a part of life, not a segment of life, not just a little piece of life, but the entirety of our life is religion. It is faith. It's rooted in our faith commitment begins with the heart out of the heart spring, the issues of life so that everything from the core of our being is affected by our acceptance of the gospel. And we saw that that key question that comes to all of us today is, what is the relationship between that word and our life in the world? Are they to be related? And and I was saying that a lot of the Christian church said, well, not really. You know, the Bible is a good spiritual book for your devotional life, but it doesn't really apply, the word doesn't really apply in all these other spheres. And I argued that that was wrong, that we need to take God at his word, the unitive word, that is there in his spoken word of creation and in his written word of scripture. God's thesis republished in his inscripturated word for our instruction. So that's the foundation. And then we talked about one covenantal institution, the family, as one area of the application of the reality of the gospel. And we talked about the importance of the covenant of marriage, of family, of having children, of raising our children in The fear and admonition of the Lord, of teaching our children the faith, of passing on the faith, of uh, caring for our parents, of actually modeling the gospel first and foremost in our own marriages, in our own homes, uh, in our relationships with our children, in how we care for one another, and then the tithe, the family's tithe as an expression of our commitment to God, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, so that as we tithe of what belongs to God, we return just a small portion of what he has given to us, to him. The tithe becomes God's kingdom resource so that we can actually see provision for God's kingdom and begin to, and I'll talk about this more now in this session, begin to put that resource to use in the areas for which God uh, intended it. And uh, so in those areas, we are, we have to, we're challenged today, aren't we? We're encouraged, but we're challenged. Are we being faithful? These are the things that the word of God requires of us, and if we want to impact the culture, we need to be obedient uh, in these areas. Now, in this session in particular, we're talking about the, uh, the next covenantal institution, the church, the church of Jesus Christ. In many respects, the, the church um, is, uh, uh, reflects the family, in many respects, because... The church is described as the family of God. Uh, so there's a there's a familial aspect to it. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So all the imagery actually that's used about the church, a lot of it is carried over from the family. And we're told that Christ is the head of his church um, in a way that's analogous to husband being head of a wife. He is he is the servant Lord. Of his church. He got down on his knees, took the towel from around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. So, the government of the church is a government by elders, and so you see there again something of a reflection of the life of the family. And the church is the ecclesia, is the called out people of God. As a result of sin in the world, We, of course, we didn't have a church technically, a church institution before the fall. We had God's people, but we didn't have what we would call the church institute before the fall. Uh, We had the family, but then with the fall and with the ministry of redemption that comes through the promise, we have the first announcement there in Genesis that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, that there's going to be enmity there, and that there is a redemptive plan and purpose. And with that redemptive plan and purpose, that covenant of grace is effectively announced. And those people who participate in that covenant of grace are what we today call the church, a called out people, a called out community. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter four, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter one uh, quickly. And I want to read first few verses where Paul speaks about the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Christ Jesus for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he favoured us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who have already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints and what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority power and dominion and every title given not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. What an incredible text uh, this is about the church, the place of the church, the position of the church. When... Um, our first parents were set in god's garden as a kingly priesthood to serve god they were about the work of liturgy 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 literally means public work public service they were about god's service and our calling as god's people as we see from this text is god's service and Paul, what he wants the Christians, the new believers in Ephesus to understand is not only who the person of Jesus Christ is and his redemption, his saving grace that is active and at work in our lives. But he, he wants the, uh, the, the, the Christian to understand, the, to fully understand, listen to his words, he says, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the perception of your mind be enlightened so you may know what the... What is the hope of his calling, the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe by the working of his mighty strength? He wants them to know God more fully, yes, but he wants them to know who they are in Christ more fully. Now, like Colossians 1, Ephesians 1 is filled with all of these superlatives about Christ, and about how he's reconciling all things, gathering all things together in him. So if you wanted another text that is summarizing the richness and the scope and the glory of the gospel, this is it. But here in this one, the church of Christ, we as God's people are brought right into the heart of that. So the church, in a sense, is an important part of the proclamation of the gospel. God's people, God's called out people are aspects Of the good news that God has called out and is redeeming a people for himself who have a specific calling. There's four things in verse 18 that Paul wants them to understand. And they are their hope, their calling, their inheritance and the power that is available to them. Their hope, their calling, their inheritance and the power that's available to them. So, first, he wants them to see this hope. Now, for many of us as Christians, yes, we say we have Christian hope. But that hope is often, for many Christians, limited to the idea, well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Right? That's, my, that's the Christian hope. I've got my ticket, I'm redeemed, I'm going to heaven. Wonderful. But actually, interestingly enough, that's not really what Paul is talking about here. Yes, it, there there is the individual aspect to our hope, although let's not forget that actually... Uh, the new jerusalem the heaven that uh, comes out of heaven uh, into the earth okay we were made for the earth this is our home this is creation there's only one creation and this one is going to be renewed and restored uh, and uh, so it's not something we're trying to escape the Greek mind, the pagan mind was always about escaping the world because it had a dialectical understanding of reality, which is to say two opposing ideas of matter and spirit or matter and idea or form and matter. And matter was the lower story of reality and this spiritual realm of ideas and abstractions and I, uh, th- this was the higher story of reality, and the, uh, the body was in a sense a prison for the soul. So the idea of you know, God raising a body from the dead, that's why in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching the gospel to the Greek philosophers, they start scoffing, laughing when he preaches the resurrection of the body. Because to the Greeks, that was absurd. And in fact, for much paganism today, and increasingly popular in our own country here, in Hinduism and Buddhism, the goal of existence is escape from this world into the Nirvana into Brahman into the nothingness into non-being that's not the Christian vision of reality no there is no dialectical tension between two portions and two parts no no there is creation there's created being and God is about the work of reconciliation and restoration that's why the body was healed in Jesus' ministry and that's why there was a physical resurrection in Jesus' ministry So it's not, our hope is not escaping into the sweet by and by. I know that some of our songs, you know, standing by the river Jordan, all this, they sound like it was just about sailing off into the sweet by and by. As one of my friends puts it, you know, the the Christian gospel is not pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on the plate while you wait. Okay, it's it's the here, it's the now. It's the reality of God's work now. Okay, so he wants them to understand their hope. And that hope concerns the, what's already taken place through Christ, but our ongoing calling, the hope of his calling. See, the hope is associated with the calling. The hope is not just, well, one day I'm going to shuffle off this miserable old coil and, and, and be in heaven. The hope concerns our calling in Christ. And eternal life is, of course, part of that. That enables us to, to enter into the fullness of our calling. It's a pledge of hope. So he wants us to know our hope. And specifically in mind is our calling in time and eternity. That is the task that God, whose dominion shall never end, has for us. The task that he's called his people to, to serve as his kingly priesthood. And then he wants us to understand, he wants us to be enlightened with regard to the riches of his inheritance in the saints, which is that when you come into Christ and you And you walk into your calling in Jesus Christ as a living hope, then you enter into the inheritance that is yours, all the covenant joys and rewards and responsibilities that are now ours as this kingly priesthood. And fourthly, Paul wants us to understand something incredible, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. If only we believe that really this manifestation of resurrection and ascension life, this authority which has Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, which suggests immediately, it tells us that this authority and power and dominion is not shunted off to the future somewhere. Oh, well, yes, we all know that Jesus will one day have power and authority in the kingdom of heaven. No. He says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He created, remember, all of those rulers and authorities, invisible and visible. He's gathering all things together in him, and he now is far above all rule, all power, all might, all dominion. And so his power is literally incomparably great. That's why Paul piles these synonyms on top of one another. Power, strength, might... He's trying to convey the vital power that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ in the gospel because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit. If we believed just a tenth of that, it would transform our lives. You know, the universal early Christian proof text, which is alluded to here in Ephesians 1 by Paul, was Psalm 110, which exalts the Lord's anointed. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when he says he's far above, uh, children especially, he, that's a spatial reference, but he doesn't mean outer space, like he's far above, like way up there somewhere. Okay? The reference is spatial, but he means it's not about the dimensions. He's talking about the superiority of Christ. To everything. The superiority of Christ to everything. His rule, arche, his authority, exousia, his power, dunamis. Are all realms in which Christ has full authority now. There is no living thing in heaven or on earth. Nothing known to men or angels that is not subject to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling us. Now in Hebrews 1, we're told again about that subjection. But we're also reminded we do not yet see everything in subjection. We see Jesus. We don't see by faith. We don't see yet everything in subjection because it's a process. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. So there is a process by which. All things, all things are in subjection, but in the providence and the justice and the judgment of God, they are being brought into subjection. And that finally means that God has placed all things at his feet, subordinated everything else to him. And then verse 22 literally reads, and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church. He gave him as head over all things to the church. It seems that he has psalm 8 verse 6 in mind here you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands you have put everything under his feet so it's been given to the church he's been given his head over all things to the ecclesia which is derived from that greek it's a greek word to call out and there was a called-out body for the public affairs of a free state or realm. The word is, is borrowed there in the Greek language, the, an eklitoi, the a called-out body, were called out for the government of the people. It was the gathered congregation of those who were commissioned for the government of the people. Now, if you think about some of the images that the scriptures use for us as uh, Christians and our role and, and uh, responsibility... One of them is an ambassador. You are ambassadors of Christ. Now, how seriously do we take that? Now, we do understand the concept of an ambassador, don't we? Because, um, well, in the British Commonwealth, we have high commissioners, but it's the same thing, ambassadors and high commissioners. But an ambassador represents sovereign authority on foreign soil. Sovereign authority on foreign soil. And so you put an embassy somewhere, you can't tax that embassy, and if you attack that embassy, you're attacking the sovereign authority that it belongs to. Right? It's a declaration of war if you attack uh, an embassy on foreign soil. So it, some of those images to help, to, to, ha- help us to understand, unpack, Paul unpacks for us there, um, the role the significance that we have that Christ has been given to us with all authority that he has he's been given as head over all things and then he's given us a gift to the church and he's not a paper monarchy this is not a constitutional monarchy you know all souvenir glasses but no real power no you know, we can have a souvenir mug and I'm, I love the queen okay I'm I've got no problem with the royal family. But our Queen can't even defend a faithful, evangelical, one of her chaplains, Gavin Ashenden, from being forced out of the church by Lambeth Palace because he objected to the Koran being read in two cathedrals in this country. A passage which rejected the divinity of Jesus. And for that, he's forced out. Now that wasn't the Queen's idea. He's one of the Queen's chaplains. But she doesn't have any real, tangible authority. Right? Jesus Christ is not your constitutional monarch. He has real authority. He is at the right hand of God. His court is in session. Now that's scripture. So, our hope in Ephesians concerns our calling in Christ as called out citizens of the kingdom of God for time and eternity. It's not some vague hope of heaven, simply. It's a covenant, covenantal inheritance of the whole cosmos, the whole earth, as Paul tells us in Romans 4, under Christ our King. You know, the meek shall inherit the scraps. The meek Shall inherit the earth. There are three land grants in the Bible, given to God's people. The first land grant was Eden. That was the land grant God set them in the garden. He says, "Keep it, tend it. It's yours." And our first parents forfeited that by their sin and rebellion. What was the second land grant in the Bible? Second land grant was Canaan. Was the Promised Land. See, people's life and health and future is tied to the earth and to an inheritance. And the people of Israel finally were expelled and dispossessed and finally excommunicated as a nation. And the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus. Even the foundation stones of the temple were ploughed up. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. The second land grant was over. The third land grant is given to the Israel of God, Jew and Gentile, the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's the whole earth. That's the land grant of God's people. It's the cosmos. It's everything. Because it all belongs to God and we are joint heirs with the Son. Remember, that's another image for the Christian. We're ambassadors. We're joint heirs with the Son. We don't think about the meaning of these terms, you see. If Jesus Christ is inheriting all things, and I'm a co-heir with Christ, then what am I inheriting? I'm inheriting everything. All things are yours, Paul, Apollos, the future. All things are yours, for all is God's. For, for all is God. Christ is God's. Paul later says in Ephesians 3.10 that these unsearchable riches of Christ through whom all things have been created have now been revealed for this intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to power and authority according to God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ. So this is what he's doing through his people. He's gathering together all things through Christ our Lord in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in heaven. Uh, even uh, on earth, even in him. That's the inheritance. This is the foundation of our understanding of the calling of the church. The place of the church, the role of the church, that all things are under his dominion, and we are called now to assert the, the crown rights of Jesus Christ the King everywhere, in the land of promise, the whole earth. That's why Paul says, what he does in Colossians 1, which we covered in a previous session. Nothing's left out there, not a square inch of the universe, not a single atom is left out from under the reign and domain of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't shock us, should it, that the Creator has come to redeem uh, all things and restore them to himself. Practically, one of the things that... um, Uh, I've been involved with in terms of, uh, as I grew in my understanding of all of this and of what these things uh, mean, Uh, in Toronto, which is where I live, uh, which is a um, very challenging city to be now, uh, in some respects quite unlike many other parts of Canada because it has that uh, humanistic domination of a kind of pagan metropolis these days and the churches being turned into condos and Harry Krishna centres and mosques and everything else. is a very tough place to be. And the church, unlike the UK, where you can go to most major cities in the UK and find a hatful of good, strong, evangelical churches, in downtown Toronto that's not the case. Uh, uh, and certainly there's been a bit of a uh, push towards church planting in the last 15 years, but it's, it's a difficult place. And so my wife and I felt called to... After doing five years of setting up RZLAM Canada, we felt uh, called to plant the church in in Toronto. Now, if everything belongs to God, then all the property in Toronto belongs to God. And he can give it to whoever he wishes. So my prayer was that instead of having to start in a school and rent a building because I had no people and no money, I just had a vision on a piece of paper. That's what I started with. Um, I remember the first week when I stepped down out of my role, and I was in a very well-paid job. And um, I had no, at that point, no guaranteed source of income. And I had three children. So I was obviously praying about it, and I received a phone call. And a man introduced himself and said, "I, I represent this foundation. I hear you're wanting to plant a church in Toronto. I said, yes. He said, I'll give you $70,000 to look after your family for this year while you're trying to set that up. So I thought, well, that's probably right then, yeah? (laughs) And for whatever reason, as we gathered a small core group of people to be part of that church plant vision, we thought, well, all these churches closing, why can't God give us one of those buildings? Now, what you have to remember is, like any city in the UK, if you've got a A church sitting on a prime piece of real estate in in downtown Toronto that is worth a lot of money, and they get sold off commercially. And usually, what those uh, those denominations are doing is propping up the pension accounts of all of their for their bureaucracy and their retirees by selling off property. Well, in the end, I'll cut the long story short. God has given us two buildings, eight million dollars worth of real estate. That was in the downtown. One of them, which was almost falling down, we liquidated, and we used the $3 million of cash which we raised from that to renovate the church and build a Christian school, where we today have a classical Christian school in the heart of downtown Toronto with a fully renovated church, debt-free, with 350 people in less than 10 years. Now, I stepped out in that venture... And actually, within the last few weeks, at the same time I began an organization called the Ezra Institute, which Steve is familiar with, which is one of the reasons I'm here and working with Christian Concern, Um, God, two weeks ago, just gave us a a $4 million facility just north of Toronto for teaching and training leaders and young professionals. Now, in my experience, in in, uh, 20 years in ministry now, over 20 years, God's able to do that because he owns everything. All we have to do is actually believe it and start stepping out and practicing it. That Christ actually does have rule and authority and power. And in the face of opposition, in the face of seeming impossible odds, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. I did not think that God could give that kind of research, uh, resource to the Institute in my flesh. And even, despite all the provisions God's made for me over the years, miraculously, still, every time I come in towards one of those hurdles, oh, what's going to happen? How can we fix this? That's the natural recourse to, to doubt. But actually, this was the foundation upon which the Westminster Church plant happened. This, what I'm telling you today. This was what gripped me. That's why we stepped out to plant the church, the institute, and the Christian school. Now. This doctrine of Christ was that which undergirded the early church. That whatever our current circumstances. They said we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. You may not feel like a conqueror. Be, uh, you know that it's very popular today for people to go in here. Um, and listen to. Uh, you know, self-help speakers to try and work themselves up into it. They're very popular in yeah. how, are you, how are you going to make loads of money and just think positive? And all? This isn't, that's not that. That's not that. This is about putting our faith and our hope and our confidence in Christ, knowing that we are more than conquerors through him, whatever our circumstances, that as a kingdom of priests under the great high priest, we have this calling of being intercessors, that we are salt and light. We bring preservation and light to the community. We intercede with God on behalf of the other. As a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, we've been granted this responsibility in this rank before God. But we are so accustomed in our time to seeing the church in retreat, it's hard for us to actually take these statements on board about the church, about our position in Christ. We find it difficult to contemplate the, the Great Commission, you know, to um, teach and command, um, baptize everything that Christ has commanded, to go and do it to, to, in the power of Christ and in the gospel. We find that difficult. We find it difficult to, to, to say, you know, to somebody about the meaning of the gospel, to stand up for a Christian vision of anything. I was sharing over lunch with um, some people I was chatting with over lunch, some lovely people. Uh, about um, was being asked about how do you, you know, how do you begin to stand up for these things uh, when, when there's so much pressure and you're a hater and, and, and a bigot if you if you articulate a Christian position? I said, well, you have to just do it and watch the response. I, a couple of weeks ago, was on a, on a show in, the UK, in, in, in Canada called um, Zuma in which these very things were, conf- were confronting me. In fact, they even wheeled out a man claiming to be a, a gay Christian. Um, And I was asked if his relationship was not sacred and holy. They thought they had me. They really did. You know, when you actually then write, I just simply quoted the Lord Jesus on the nature of marriage. When you actually stand up for these things publicly, knowing that this is the Christ that is on our side. It's unbelievable how many letters you get, how many emails you receive from people thanking you for doing something as simple as standing up for the truth of God's word. Now, when we start to do that, then we can expect God to do great things. Then we can expect him to be building his church and giving us the resources that we need. If we can't be governed as God's church, though, by his covenant word, how do we expect to influence the nation? We've got this uh, rapid secularization all around us, we know that. But the... The early church and, and the church for many centuries fought against all of that and saw God work in the most surprising and remarkable ways. They didn't see the church life as a, a part-time personalist kind of philosophy like, uh, you know, you, some non-believers will say to you, you do church, that's great. I go to the gym or, you know, I play golf or, you know, I feng shui my apartment as though you're talking about some kind of equivalent kind of a thing. You know, this is not some sort of add-on. This is not an addendum. This is not a, uh, an addition to our... We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the called-out people of God. We are, as the early church said, a new humanity in the second Adam. We represent the king of all the universe. That which you bind on earth is uh, 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 bind and loose is bound and loosed in heaven and earth. You know, uh, one commentator, Brian Abshire, a student of the Puritans, he says, The Puritans did not see Christianity as a spare-time religious philosophy to help them cope with an angst-ridden world. To the contrary, their religious convictions brought suffering, persecution, imprisonment, and death. They integrated their doctrine with a consistent biblical worldview which offered practical application for every area of life. If God granted modern American evangelical Christians a new continent filled with wilderness, wild beasts and first nations peoples and allowed us to settle and form a new Christian nation there we could not do it today what our forebears what our spiritual forebears did most Christians would say that it couldn't be done the bible doesn't give us a blueprint for building a Christian culture others would say it shouldn't be done because we're living in the last days so don't waste the limited resources therefore it wouldn't be done you don't polish brass on a sinking ship I mean you ask yourself you know would we as J.I. Packer calls us today, you know, compared to some of those people, spiritual pygmies. The sacrifices that our forebears made for the gospel, and we're afraid of telling our neighbor that, you know, we're Christian and, and maybe that, that, you know, that, that marriage is a good thing. We've lowered the bar significantly, haven't we? Isn't it possible that we've been privatized and pietized and spiritualized and truncated into this narrow vision of Christianity that doesn't bear any resemblance to Ephesians 1, who's been given its head over all things to the church, even the persecuted church, at the very least, the early church could say, this is our testimony about Jesus Christ, and we'll die for it if necessary. And that's when they had no property and no power and no influence. And you can't, you know, give us all that revisionist stuff about the evil of Constantine and everything else. Even before all of that, they stood on the truth of the word of God. Jesus said, in this world you will have, you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So how can we develop this vibrant church in the face of this? Well, Paul gives us this affirmation of the unconquerable power of God, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, all things under his feet. And we, just, we have to take hold of that, friends, by faith. That's the starting point. You take hold of that truth by faith. Because it is true. the disciples couldn't believe in the resurrection, could they? Mary Magdalene came and reported it. They came from the Mayesh Road, they reported it. They still couldn't believe it. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. There are non-Christian philosophies all around us today and religions around us today that are deceptive, but they are hopelessly inadequate views of reality. They, They can't account for our decline as a people. What accounts for it is that we are under the covenantal righteous judgment of God for our apostasy. So the answer to turn things around is to reverse direction towards faithfulness again. It's not rocket science. You know The Anglican church has synod after synod after synod to discuss what the spirit is saying when he's already said it, he's written it down, and all you have to do is do it. And then you will arrest the decline of your church into extinction within 25 years, according to their own analysts, with the average age being something like 65. That's not to knock Anglicanism. I served in the Anglican church here for a number of years in my first church role. But, but only the faithful will, will survive. Because God takes, if you read the book of Revelation, what does God do with unfaithfulness? He takes the candle away. Their bell belt towers will fall. Their pensions will run out and it'll all be over because the church is not a social club. It's not the Rotary Club. It's not a golf club. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And he does not run a beggar's agency and he does not tolerate unfaithfulness. He does not cohabit. He's not an adulterer. And if you commit adultery with Christ and you worship other gods, your lampstand is going to be taken away. Period. And God will raise up a faithful people in its place. We are an where well, the church is God's armory for the application of the aspects of his image. God issues, the church issues God's conscription. It trains the troops for action and it sends us out weekly to conquer in his name. Ministry, the ministry of the church is happening out there. Okay, so when we come together for worship, we hear the word of God. We have the administration of the sacraments. We have the hymns and prayers of God's people entering into the the temple, to the mercy seat, to the heavenly temple as Hebrews teaches us. Where Christ is interceding, where he's reigning. And then we exercise discipline in the life of the church as the the means of, of keeping the church faithful to Christ. If there's no church discipline, the church will soon disappear. And then we are sent out Because that's what we're called out for, to go out with God's marching orders, with his teaching manual, to put it in very simple terms, and to apply his word, his crown rights to every aspect of our lives. One critical area would be the area of education, for example, which I will uh, touch on now. You see, if you look at the way we used to build churches, North America is the best example of this because we have lots of space and lots of land. When we built a church, we built a sanctuary. And usually in this country as well, we put a schoolhouse on the side. Because the church saw itself as responsible for funding education. Right? If you look at the, the Anglican churches, the Anglican schools that remain the most popular, people always trying to get their oh, gotta get them into that one. All the non believers right they want them in the church school if they can we want to move into an area where they might be in that catchment and that's just what's left of it we used to build a sanctuary and a schoolhouse and now what we do in North America anyways we build these vast airport hangars I call them right they're plane hangars aircraft hangars they've got no aesthetic value whatsoever and in there you can get your hair cut get a burger do pretty much everything and then drive home there's no ministry sort of out there. It's, it's just a vast ghetto. But we come into God's house, we receive the sacrament, we hear His word, and we go out for ministry. We don't come in and consume ministry from a professional. Well, I'm, I bought my ministry for this week, I stuck my offering in, in the thing. Now, give me a good sermon. You know, worship wasn't very good this week. What's the matter with the band? So you're paying for professional service. You are the Church of Christ. We hear the word, we go out. In terms of it. It's by regeneration, by transformation. And the Levitical ministry of the Church was paramount, so teaching was paramount. And so, with the total mess of public education in Toronto, what we wanted to do was establish an educational program that was... Centered in Christ and a scriptural worldview and returns to well-established patterns of effective education. So we started a school. And it's always been funded now. Um, God always provides. And we are seeing not just pastors from all over the city putting their children in. We've got non-believers who want to put their children in our school. In fact, we have some already in it asking to get into our school. You have to pay fees to come to our school. And there is a bursary fund, and we do our very best to to meet the needs of poor families. But it's a fee-paying school, supported by the church, because the church funds it through its facility and everything else. Now, instead of building new buildings for people that stand empty all week, when you do a church, why not start a school? Fund a Christian school. Parents get together, because what's happening is that you cannot, in an hour or two on a Sunday, in a Sunday school class, deprogram your children from everything they're hearing week in, week out in public education. Now, I know I'm going to upset some of you, and my purpose here is not to offend, but I don't preach to be popular. Yeah, I've never been popular. (laughs) I'm just trying to be faithful. I came to this understanding, I grew into this understanding. I have three children of my own. They were in that school that we started. Two of them are still in it. Getting a fantastic education. I had the privilege on Easter Sunday of baptizing my second daughter. Now, we want to be able to retain our children in the life of the church, don't we? And so if they have to be... The great commission is that the church is to teach all things I have commanded. It would have been unthinkable to a first century Christian to take their child give them to a pagan to be educated Monday through Friday, and then say, well, here's an hour with your Sunday school teacher, and you may maybe get an hour or so with me during the week, and we'll deprogram all of that. Now, I know that the education system has been stolen from us by stealth over many years in this country. It's been stolen. It has been stolen. It's been stolen in Canada. It was all Christian. All the universities, Cambridge, Oxford, you name the universities, they're all Christian. All the mottos of all the universities, they're Christian. We built them, we paid for them. But then we retreated from them all like this. Oh, you know, that's not really really gospel ministry, is it? Let's just focus on justification by faith. That's not really the gospel. That's not the gospel. There's There's so little that's left of the gospel now. Basically, all you can do is tell people that Jesus loves them on a Sunday morning. Nothing else is the gospel. So there's a challenge, the Levitical ministry of the church. To at least help fund education. Now you can do it. You can, if we could do it, we have nothing. No money, nothing. God did it. You can do it. You can do it. The church took Paul seriously as well in Corinthians. And as one historian writes, the church took Paul seriously and the church courts started courts that became courts of justice. Their record was sufficiently good to attract pagans who wanted justice, knowing that the Roman courts were increasingly both slow and unjust. When Constantine came to power, he recognised this aspect of the church's governmental power, and in certain areas he invested all bishops with legal magisterial powers. With this magisterial power went the garb and insignia of such an office, and bishops to this day wear the insignia of a Roman magistrate. For 600 years, bishops provided effective government. So Paul says, why do you go to law against each other? Is not there men amongst you who are wise enough to judge in these things? It's better that you be defrauded than you go before a non-believer. So what did the church do? They started Christian courts. And when Constantine came to Paris, he said, the only place that gives justice is these church courts. Right. You can have the robes of a Roman magistrate. That's why the bishops wear all that regalia today. They are the robes of a Roman justice, a Roman judge. We've come a long way, I know, from all of that, but we'll take some questions now. All this was done, and much more, and I'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about it in the final session today. All that the church did in, abandoning, in, in uh, collecting up the abandoned babies left under the Roman aqueducts, abortions, botched, botched attempts at infanticide, adopted them into Christian families, provided and paid for, for the poor, Funded thousands, tens of thousands of the pagan poor through through the tithe. Built schools, hospitals, all in the name of Christ and the gospel. Now you think about this. If you're a missionary, okay, let's think traditional English missions, right? Traditional English missionary work. British missions from Scotland, which sent probably more missionaries around the world than any other place in the 19th century. What did we do? We said, right, we need to take the gospel to people. So what we're going to do is we're going to go there and we're going to... And I visited many of these places all around the Middle East right? that are still there and have affected, to this day, Muslim sheikhs running Abu Dhabi. We started schools. We started hospitals. We planted churches. We provided for the poor. That's what we did. Because back here in those days, we could assume that the churches were funding schools, providing care for the poor and the elderly and the destitute and so forth, uh, and, uh, and paying for health care and welfare and so forth. We, we, could, we, could, we could assume all of that. So we would go over there, and as our witness to the gospel, that's what we do. What do we do now? Well, actually, when you do missions, people still, when they go over there, they go, oh, let's have a school, let's have this. But here, they don't think it's necessary. In fact, they'll even be opposed to it. They'll say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. That's offensive. Okay, so it's okay for you to do it in East Timor, but you won't do it here. Is the mission different? Is God different? No, we could assume and presume upon a Christian worldview, a Christian understanding of reality, and all these things... And now it's for people from Asia, from the, from the South, from um, South Asia, from Africa that are coming here to remind us and tell us to do what we challenged them about 150 years ago. And now we need flying bishops from Africa who aren't in the grip of apostasy to come and oversee our churches because there aren't any bishops here. Two weeks ago, I was preaching at my own church, Westminster Chapel. I was serving communion. And a man came down the center aisle. And in our church, we we come out to receive communion. And he took the silver chalice with wine in it. And as he took it, I noticed that he had a large bishop's ring on his finger. I thought... Interesting. It's look, 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 to me like a, the, the ring of an Anglican bishop. Uh, he took the cup and he paused and he said, I want to thank you for your faithful witness and testimony to the gospel. He said some months ago, you wrote an article called goodbye to the Anglican Church of Canada. After the synod in which we abandoned the Christian understanding of marriage. He said that article went all over. He said, since then I signed up for your stuff at the Ezra Institute. I get your Jubilee Journal everything else. You're doing a fantastic job. Thank you. Took his wine. Off he went. I went to speak to him after the service. He was the Bishop of the Arctic. <laughs> the Bishop of the Arctic. Right? That's a huge area. Okay? And actually, a surprising number of churches, but they're amongst the Inuit people, they're amongst First Nations people, mainly, living in the Arctic. And he said that they came, he and some of the, his priests, came to that synod in Toronto, I think it was. And they were listening to all of this apostasy. And one of the priests, one of the um, Inuit Indian priests, got up and he said, Several hundred years ago, your ancestors brought me this Bible. They told us to believe it and live by it. Now you tell, it, tell us you don't want it anymore. He says, so why don't you take your churches and your money and your buildings and get off our parish and we'll handle our own churches from here on. Now that is the kind of witness that you need. And that's why we need to be welcoming in missionaries from all over the world to Britain today. To remind us of what the task and the calling actually is. Let's take a few moments for some questions before our break. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So, um, uh, what, what would you say to somebody who says, "Well, look, you know, skate, state schools aren't that bad, and they're they're, they're free, um, and uh, it's hassle to, you know, I don't have the time for this, and I haven't got the money to send them elsewhere, and so on." First of all, I think what need, we need to do there, and I have, if I had a few more sessions today, I'd deal with this and give a whole lecture on education, which is to point out that, as we've seen from lecture one. There is no such thing as a neutral education. There's no neutral fact in the universe. All things have been created by Christ, are sustained by him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. So there's no atom in the universe, as Abraham Kuyper, I think, put it, that uh, over which Christ does not say mine. Okay, So there's no subject of study in school that is unrelated to Unrelatable back to its origin in God the Creator. And that affects all of our theory-making, um, all of our uh, practical applications of education. And education today has become indoctrination. It's not education anymore. For the most part, it's indoctrination for political purposes. Certainly that's the way it is in Canada. The Toronto District School Board, we have a lesbian premier in, in Ontario, and um, she has railroaded this radical queer theory, into the schools. It touches every, every lesson. It's not just that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. At root, it's fundamentally anti-Christian. Now, I put it to you, I've got my family, three of my brothers and their families, I put it to you that at root, fundamentally, state education in this country has become anti-Christian. Uh, if you're not teaching about the centrality of Christ, you're denying it. Period. He who is not for me is against me. So if it's lost its Christian root, then we have to be prepared to make the sacrifices that are necessary to address that. I believe that 100%. Now, that's not to say, hear me correctly, that's not to say there aren't still some good schools out there, right? Relative terms, it's not to say there aren't faithful teachers out there. It's not to say there aren't Christian missionary teachers in the schools out there doing their best. But this worldview is a juggernaut. It's a juggernaut, and it is trying to plow over the minds of the young. And there, I have some Christians say to me, oh, well, you know, we need to be doing evangelism in the school. Okay, well, so do, I, do you mean that you're in there evangelizing the teacher day to day, or do you mean that you want your six year old doing it? Because the mind of a child is a sponge. They're not critical thinkers, they're not critically aware. So young people, they soak in, young children soak in everything. They're sponges. They don't critically evaluate. They're not capable of that at that age. So you don't send a child to do a man's job. We don't sacrifice our children to Molech because we think it's connected to some higher spiritual purpose. Okay? We have to educate our children in the faith. As I said, 80%, and that's probably conservative, of all Christian young people in North America, in the church, have left the faith In evangelical churches, by the age of 23, they get to university, their first semester, their professor of history, English, science, whatever it may be, blows their faith out of the water because they've got Bible stories and an experience. And their Bible stories that they got in Sunday school and their religious experience, which is increasingly watery, invariably is not enough to sustain them because they do not have a robust Christian worldview education that critically is able to understand all of these uh, anti-Christian paradigms, assess them, critically engage with them, and know how to overcome them. So that's what we're doing. And our, and our kids who are going on into to the high school are two, three years ahead of the state school system. Because the state schools, for the most part, their concern is keep the children in this form of education as long as possible, but they're not to be made into critical thinkers, preferably, for the most part. The purpose is to get them to accept this. That's why, increasingly, even at the universities, you've got speakers being no-platformed and students protesting about this, that, and the other, like the sort of bunch of uh, spoilt brats that actually most of them are. Right? You cannot take somebody having a different opinion from them, otherwise they're going to cry and run home. And Berkeley, California, they're rioting. If somebody comes to the school and says something that they don't like. Like, marriage is a good idea. Okay? So, this is what is, this is... I'm just describing to you the reality of what's happening in the culture and what's happening in the church. Now, How do we stop the... bleed? See, if we could just retain our own children in the church for the next generation, the church is 70% bigger. If we just keep our own kids... Never mind evangelizing everybody else, which we need to be engaged in. If we just retain our own children in the church, we're 70% better off. But if we keep sending them vulnerable young minds to be educated by pagans and humanists, Monday through Friday, we are going to struggle. And I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just explaining to you the realization that I came to... My wife and I came to about our own because the, the presumption that we could have in this country for many years was our children will get a broadly Christian education, Ofsted inspects them to make sure that it's broadly Christian and everything else, and now Ofsted inspects Christian schools and tries to shut them down for not conforming to British values. That's the situation. Yeah. Yeah. From the elders' meetings. For us who are in the pew, what, you, what can we do? Um mm-hmm. we make yeah. troublemakers? Sure. We give it a pretty rough ride. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. And don't, despite my uh, exuberant enthusiasm, please don't get the impression that I'm not understanding or. or uh, uh, unconcerned or unfeeling about the, the very difficult situations that there are here because I say all my family, my brothers are all here with their families and I'm speaking a lot in the churches here and I know the kind of opposition that, that's out there. If the the tithe, okay, was supposed to be directed in part towards education, okay? Okay. Uh, I don't think that those things are a priority with the tithe in most churches today. Um, The tithe is unto the Lord, not unto the church. So you have the responsibility to distribute your tithe. Now, if the church is not doing what it should do, which is sponsoring and helping Christian education and trying to advance a vision of the gospel that engages these things, then we need to first of all think about what use are we putting our tithe to. Because I believe, actually, that that if you have to pay for some Christian education, that's an aspect of your tithe, okay, for start off. Because it was a Levitical responsibility to do it. A tenth of the tenth went to the priest for worship. A lot of the rest of it went to the Levitical responsibilities of health, welfare, and education. So, we need to think about the use of our money in that kind of a situation. Second of all, look, we often have to live... With people and and worship with people, who's who need growth in their understanding of the gospel. Even Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, think over what I say, so that the Lord may give you understanding in everything. And one of the issues with the, 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 that's so sensitive here is that when you start talking about stuff like this, people feel as though you're criticising their parenting, <laughs> right? So it feels personal. It's not personal. Make, we're trying to make a general point about. The calling of God's people. But it feels personal because we might have made certain decisions, done the best we could with our children, made certain decisions and feel like we're being got at by this teaching. But we need to we need to drop that sensitivity. Um, And I think Christians in churches that are not taking this seriously simply need to come together and say, well, look, we respect uh, the the church and and your leaders that you this time don't see this. Um, But this group of families, we think this matters, and so we're going to do the following. And uh, even if it means homeschool cooperatives, or if it means groups of families coming together and saying, you know, we started, our Christian school started in a church basement. You don't need a lot to have a school, you know. You don't need a gym. You don't need Bunsen burners in a science lab, where all you do anyway is burn other people's bottoms with them during the lesson. Okay? Let's just face it that's all that ever happened with Bunts and burners and all that kind of stuff all that tech stuff is not education right you can't do a valuable science experiment until you and actually learn something valuable until much later on, quite frankly that's just games for the kids okay and for the teacher to blow something up which was fun occasionally fine, but is it really education you don't need much you can have you can use a room in somebody's house you can actually do stuff together. So I would say, I understand the problem, and obviously prayer is critical that we pray into that. We need to find as many like minded people as we can and say, what can we do? Because we're going to do it anyway, even if the church is faithful. When people said to, to Kerry, if the Lord wants to save India, he'll do it without your help, um, and that's what the mission boards were saying to him, he said, well, I'm going anyway. You know, because in the end, our loyalty is to Christ and to the gospel. And if elders don't see it, then they can carry on and God will honor faithful people and faithful decisions. Hi. First question I must ask before I which is the Heavenly Man's You know Heavenly Man's Day? Yes. Like that, you know, the state is saying religion. He's religion. Externalized, yep. I never found that in his book. Oh which book the calvinistic concept of culture i'd have to i'd have to see where i i'd have to see where that comes from okay all right Um, well, in the end, I don't think anything happens without prayer. But prayer, I think, uh, you know, Paul says pray continually. So what I've tried to cultivate in my own life is um, not just uh, set aside times of prayer and devotion, but actually cultivating throughout my day interaction with the Lord. And um, yes, these situations drive you to your knees. and, And whilst, you know, when I share certain parts of the story, it can sound as though, oh, this was just wonderful and how marvelous and everything else. Well, in the midst of all of that, my wife got cancer. So, um, and, uh, you know, and it was, it was serious. It was, uh, it was invasive and it spread to the lymph nodes and she had to have chemotherapy and surgery and, and everything else and it went on for a long period of time. She's doing well right now. Um, but God still will bring into your path when blessing comes into your path Challenges also come into you, your path, and the only way you can deal with those situations is prayer. So, uh, yeah, we 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 just pray all the way, and, and we have a we have a team at the church who are very very committed to prayer. You know, some people say prayer meetings are out of date. Well, we still every Friday um, there's church prayer meetings on a Friday evening, on a Sunday morning. We have a prayer concert several times a year where we get the church together for prayer. Um, We can do all things through Christ who gives us uh, the strength. And that means even facing the opposition of the church. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.